3: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum, I'm Mina Kim. The sheer number of COVID infections now hitting California means we can expect to see more long COVID cases, according to doctors and researchers, and now a new UK study finds more symptoms associated with long COVID than the documented fatigue, brain fog, shortness of breath and muscle aches. These symptoms include hair loss and sexual dysfunction. And people of color, women, and younger people may be at higher risk of becoming long haulers. This hour, we look at what the latest research on long COVID is telling us and learn how people who have it are coping. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The LA Times reports one in 14 California adults currently has long COVID, according to data analyzed by the CDC. That means they have symptoms of COVID infection lasting more than three months. A recent study in the UK has added more symptoms of long COVID on top of exhaustion and breathing and cognitive problems, including prolonged loss of smell, fever, hair loss and sexual dysfunction. The range of symptoms can be debilitating, as well as the mental and emotional toll. And joining me now is Dr. Eric Topol, Professor of Molecular Medicine and Executive Vice President of Scripps Research Institute. Dr. Topol, thank you you so much for being with us.
4: Happy to be with you. Very important topic. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I want to talk more with you about what we learned from that long COVID UK study. What is it that is new? Something that we didn't really know before.
4: Well, there's quite a bit in that it's um, a very large study uh, with a cohort followed where there's a match uh, control group, which is very important in these long COVID studies. And it is a comprehensive assessment of every symptom you can imagine. And there were nearly 60 that were distinct in the group that had prior COVID with these protracted symptoms over the course of months. And as you mentioned, there were these new symptoms that hadn't really surfaced before that had the highest uh, uh, adjusted risk ratio, like the hair loss, libido, uh, sexual dysfunction. So these were things that were not really prominent on the radar screen as other symptoms like um, brain fog and fatigue and and so many other things that we've been in touch with.
3: The other thing it seemed to do was add to or... Affirm that it was women, uh, black people, and other people of color um, who were predisposed potentially or had increased risk factors for long COVID.
4: Right. So uh, this is uh, equally important as to the symptoms that it um, it was uh, um, showing that you know we didn't know about, and that is these were all people who never were hospitalized for COVID. So there's a lot of confusion about the people who had mild to moderate, not requiring hospitalization. This is a really big study to uh, shed light on that, and it, importantly, the, uh, the trend of having long COVID was higher in younger people.
1: Mm. Uh,
4: so, it, it, and as you said, uh, it was also uh, in uh, people of color. I mean, there a lot of the risk factors were identified because of the ability to have this matching. Uh, and such a large uh, cohort that, of studies. So I think this is what we've generally seen, that it's often very young, healthy people with mild to moderate uh, uh, symptoms of COVID that have this, these problems uh, that are enduring.
3: Do you have any idea why there's an increased risk for long COVID in young people?
4: <laughs> I, I wish I knew about that. Um, I think there's a lot of theories, right? Um, there's theories about that... Um, the immune uh, system is gone haywire in some people with long COVID. That is, uh, there's either uh, remnants of the virus or actual uh, virus that's culturable, that is, uh, uh, replication competent virus that's in a reservoir, or auto antibodies to um, the virus or its components. Anyway, there's an immune theory. That, of course, seems to be especially more prominent uh, in women as to their symptoms that fit into that cluster. And the immune system uh, among younger people may be different uh, than older to help explain this. At any rate, we don't have a good explanation. And so right now, it's just a bunch of theories that remain unproven.
3: Yeah. You mentioned that it's some 60 or so symptoms, distinct documented symptoms of long COVID. So the symptoms are are really broad and wide ranging. What kinds of challenges does that pose in terms of research um, and so on?
4: Well, it does pose a really big challenge in the care of these individuals, because that's why we have these long COVID clinics that have uh, sprung up throughout the country, uh, multidisciplinary, because the, the symptoms are really very diverse, and they can involve virtually every organ system of the body. And so it's a challenge uh, to get the right expertise, especially since we don't have any therapies that have been validated. Uh, So, you know, this is uh, trying to support people that um, can be disabled, can just people who are perfectly healthy, you know, athletic, uh, and now, you know, not able to have the energy to get through the day and difficulty getting back to their usual life and work and all that sort of thing. So uh, it's a big challenge uh, for the individuals affected, for the care of these people. And of course, we're we're not moving nearly as quickly as we could to have the biomarker. You know, we're two and a half years into this, two years knowing full well that there's a condition of long COVID. We don't have the advances that we need in terms of effective therapies, uh, biomarkers so we can follow people and make... Accurate uh, diagnoses and, and trends. So, a lot of work that needs to be done that's been delayed, only starting to get into the right path in recent weeks and months.
3: Yes. I want to bring Angela Mariquez Vasquez into the conversation now, a long COVID patient and president of Body Politic, a grassroots patient led health justice organization. Angela, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. As you're
3: hearing about some of the results of this, new study on a very large cohort of people. I'm curious if you're hearing ways that your own experience of long COVID has aligned with some of these latest findings.
2: Um, Absolutely. I mean, it is, uh, I think, really great that the research is um, beginning to reflect what patients have been describing um, for upwards of two and a half years now. Um, I myself got sick uh, at the um got covid at the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020 um and you know they, these symptoms you know even things like sexual dysfunction uh, hair loss fatigue um these have all been reported and even been validated in other patient led stories um long before uh, this this particular study came out so um you know for me it it's sort of it's sort of um more validating than uh, new news to hear about all of these symptoms.
3: Do you still have lingering symptoms of long COVID and, and how do you manage them if you do?
2: Yes, absolutely. I still consider myself um ill with long COVID. Mm. Uh um I would say f- now, um, two and a half years in, my symptoms are much more well-managed, but still very much present. Um, so in particular, uh, I have uh, chronic pain, um, migraines near daily if I, if I don't take um, several medications, um, nerve pain, neuropathy in my hands and feet, Um, I have uh, severe allergies now. I actually have a condition uh, called mast cell activation syndrome, which basically means my, the innate uh, immune system uh, is really hyperactivated. So I now have to carry EpiPens uh, with me wherever I go, which was Mm -hmm. not something I ever had to do before I got sick with COVID. Um, And so, you know, I, I definitely, am, I would say more functional than I was, you know, when I I first got sick, and certainly even a year ago. Um, but it, you know, long COVID is definitely um, something that I I have to manage daily with with lifestyle adjustments and lots of medication.
3: I imagine that takes or has taken quite a toll on you, and also on people that you have talked to through Body Politic. What has that been like? What do you feel like is important for people to understand about that part of it?
2: You know, I think um, that this has been a really traumatic experience for most, if not all of us. Um, in particular, I think those of us who got sick sort of in the first and second waves of the pandemic before long COVID was really being, you know, acknowledged by uh, the media and certainly doctors, um, you know, still many of us are are being medically gaslighted in our support group. We get, you know, dozens of messages a week in the support group about how um, doctors are saying that this is, you know, all anxiety, that folks are just stressed and they need to take some time off work to rest and and relax, and and while you know the prescription of rest is absolutely um, something that I advocate for, and we find folks really benefit from. Um, I, what I would really love for for folks to really understand is that many of the the mental health conditions, including my own, sort of uh, PTSD and and depression are really a function of, of how disabled um, I have become compared to, you know, my my previous life where I was a runner and an athlete. Um, mm. And, you know, that, that my mental health has improved in the last year as I have gotten more competent um, medical care. Um, and I think that I, I fully believe that that is true for many, if not most long COVID patients that their mental health issues are are a consequence of of not getting the kind of care that they really deserve and, and we need, but is just not accessible for a variety of reasons.
3: You've talked a little bit also about the impact on, on families, on people who live with or care for people with long COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about that?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think caretakers of people with long COVID are a group of folks that that really need a lot more um, support, both you know, emotional and psychosocial community support, as well as tangible financial uh, support. We have, you know, parents, single parents who have children with long COVID who now have a child with special health care needs, which, you know, if you if you have children who are healthy, you know, you know how much of a challenge that uh, that can be. And and if you have, you know, a child with chronic health conditions, that's also something that uh, I think can really challenge uh, parents and caretakers. If you're an adult um, with with long COVID, that also really, I think, is is really challenging um, to deal with. And so, you know, in particular, I'm really concerned about, you know, low income folks and immigrants who um, don't have the support community and financial to to really care for themselves and their families.
3: We're talking about long COVID, the toll it takes and what we're learning from the science. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm
0: Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For a future Forum show, we want to look at adoption and why so few women and pregnant people choose adoption when denied abortion care. Did you put a child up for adoption or did you consider it? If you'd like to share your story, you can email forum at kqed.org or leave a voicemail at 415-553-3300. This hour, we're talking about long COVID and the physical and emotional toll it takes on COVID long haulers, and also what we're learning from new research that is coming out. About long COVID, we're joined by Angela Mariquez Vasquez, a long COVID patient and president of Body Politic, a grassroots patient led health justice organization, and Dr. Eric Topol, professor of molecular medicine and executive vice president of Scripps Research Institute in Southern California. You can share with us if you have had symptoms of long COVID and your experience, or if you live with or care for someone who has long COVID and how you're doing as well. You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can give us a call now at 866 733 6786. 6786. And of course, if you have questions for our guests, feel free to share those as well. Matthew writes I'm a 64 year old man living in rural Sonoma County. Everyone in my compound came down with COVID about July 1st and got the antiviral meds. My symptoms were generally mild, but waves of nausea, brain fog, and malaise still occur especially after exertion. Seems I am getting my mojo back, but not sure if a month of primary symptoms puts me and my landmates in the long COVID lane. If that's the case, can you comment on what to do in the lack of much research? For example, recommended supplements like vitamins, lion's mane mushrooms, and liposomal glutathione. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Also, can a daily sauna help? Hate to think the brain fog is permanent, as I have lots to think about. I'll actually put that to both you, Dr. Topol and Angela, but but Dr. Topol, first, any thoughts on Matthew's question here?
4: Yeah, unfortunately, the predicament is we don't have anything. Uh, there's lots of things that are advertised, supplements, like he's mentioned, but there's nothing that's been proven to help yet. Uh, so one thing for sure that many um, small studies suggest is that uh, rest is important that not trying to push oneself because that can actually exacerbate or even further prolong these symptoms. But outside of that, you know, there's a lot of things that are um, being touted that have no data to support them. And we that's where we really need uh, help here. And the, the trials, that have to be launched or some that are just beginning to get going. But uh, we're in a tough situation without any type of real treatment uh, validated. Mm.
3: Angela, do you have any Advice for Matthew?
2: Definitely. I think, um, you know, I agree with Dr. Topol. Uh, rest, I think, is hugely important. One of the the symptoms that I think this nature study missed um, that is ex- incredibly prominent in um, in patients that we hear from, um, and in other studies is post exertional malaise, which is basically when you push yourself past your own personal en- energy threshold, um, you will experience a relapse of of your symptoms, which for many people include fatigue, you know, for myself, it's it's um, severe pain and insomnia. And so, uh, you know, I think rest while it is um, maybe not curative, it's certainly supportive and will, um, for many folks, prevent the kinds of debilitating relapses that that really can entrench themselves um, in folks, you know, and I, I think I'm so glad that this um that at least this gentleman is uh, familiar with, you know, the concept of pacing. I also really just want to note that um, I I think it's really important for everyone to understand that long COVID isn't, you know, very new. Um, There have been, you know, infection-triggered chronic illnesses for generations, and we, you know, we have just not uh, invested in the kind of clinical research until now, until there's a, a very public, you know, mass disabling event. Um, and so on the one hand, I'm, I'm very encouraged that that we are getting the, now the kinds of investments and attention um, in these uh, types of conditions and infection-triggered chronic illnesses. But, um, you know, we've, I think our communities, the, the broader chronic illness communities have been waiting um Decades for for this kind of um, uh, research into actual treatment, so that they can, can they can get better.
3: Huh. Let me go to caller Corey. Actually, hi Corey, thanks for joining us.
2: Um, hi, I have MECFS,
6: which is a post viral viral illness that Fauci said long COVID is highly suggestive of, if not the same thing. Um, it has. After six months of long COVID symptoms, you officially qualify for ME-CFS. But ME-CFS has not been, um, as you were just saying, in the spotlight at all. We've been gaslit for decades. Um, with ME-CFS, you can end up with a feeding tube, unable to even roll over in bed. Um, but the people who are best off just feel like they have the flu all the time. I'm a former gymnast and athlete who, and martial artist and dancer who is in a wheelchair um, but the brain fog, the, the mast cell activation syndrome, um, POTS, uh, orthostatic intolerance, um, all those things, you know, the fatigue, the muscle aches, the pain, the headaches, everything is the same. Um, but long COVID research is, um, is doing a lot for us. Because and, you had it uh, prior. This yeah, was not oh, oh, something
3: for a. This is not something, Corey, from a COVID infection for you.
6: No, no. This, is, this was from, um, from a, a neurovirus for me. Oh. But um, Stanford has a treatment clinic that is doing wonders. Um, there are actual medical pills you can take <laughs> besides supplements. And pacing and rest, obviously, are the very best things. I've improved from eating breaks, chewing my food, to being able to move around the house um, with pacing, rest, and uh, a, a, a few of Stanford's treatments:
3: hmm. um,
6: low dose Abilify, low dose uh Valtrex. There, there are treatments.
3: Well, Corey, I'm glad you're doing better, and I'm glad to hear that long COVID research has actually done a lot for MECSS as well. Kind of underscoring Angela's point from before, Dr. Tobel. Matthew's comment was that he had gotten it in July, and this UK study was conducted with data from last year and the year before. So, of course, before this BA5 wave that may have affected Matthew. I guess one of the things that I'm curious is you've called BA5 the worst variant yet. Are there characteristics of this variant that make you worry that we will see a lot more long COVID cases from it?
4: Yeah, it's a really important question, Mina. I think the reason why I would characterize it as the worst variant isn't because we're seeing in the United States more deaths and hospitalizations than any prior variant. But just to be clear, that it has the most immune escape from our uh, immune system response. It has, um, you know, the most fitness of the virus. Uh, And it is penetrating um, the ability for our uh, first line of defense, interferons, innate immunity, as well as our antibody neutralization. I mean, it really has changed so much from the original Omicron. It's so distant uh, from the standpoint of the genomics, the mutations, and the protein. So from a biologic point of view, it's clearly the worst virus. But interestingly, there was a report about how are we seeing uh, long covid uh, more or less from Omicron, not BA5, but BA1, the original Omicron that hit us hard um, beginning of this year, um, versus Delta and prior variant. Now, remember that um, we're, there's a lot less loss of smell and taste with all the Omicron variants. So there's there are differences in some of the symptoms. And the UK uh, has, you know, really great uh, data reports almost on a weekly basis they did look at long covid uh from omicron to Delta they found that it was it was somewhat lower uh you know it's still a major uh issue because you know even if you drop down uh to uh one percent it's still affecting you know, millions of people so I think the answer is we're likely uh to see less Uh, long COVID, it's still a very, very big problem with Omicron. We don't have any data for BA5 yet because it's so new. uh, And it'll take months for us to sort that out and compare it to, you know, BA2 and and all the other prior variants. So um, there's some favorable aspects here, but it isn't enough to think that we're not going to face uh, Mm. sequela of people who get a COVID infection. There's only one way to prevent long COVID is not to get an infection.
3: Right, well, how effective are vaccines though in protecting you from long covid
4: right, so the surefire way is not to get an infection uh the vaccines there are multiple reports about vaccines uh and it looks as though it ranges from anywhere from twenty to fifty percent reduction depending on the study, fifty percent being the the most uh optimistic view. So it does. Having vaccination and that immunity does have some protection. We don't know precisely how much, but yeah, that's another reason people should be vaccinated and boosted. And if they're over 50 years old or um, have significant risk factors, should get a a second booster. All these things to protect oneself, uh, because the unpredictability of the virus uh, is what is part of the problem of The the long COVID potential.
3: Well, Dr. Topol, if younger people seem to be more likely to become long haulers, should we be changing the vaccine or booster guidance? Right now, it's people just, it's just people over 50 being eligible for the booster right now. Do you think it's time to expand that?
4: Yeah, for the second booster, right. Um, uh, Unfortunately, uh, we have tens of millions of vaccine doses that uh, are soon going to expire and be discarded. And what would be far better is to open it up to anyone who wants to get the second booster under age 50, uh, you know, without uh, immunocompromise. So that hasn't happened yet. I, I hope any day we'll get the green light. There's interest from the White House response team, but we haven't seen the green light to uh, make those vaccine doses available for anyone uh, of younger age.
3: Make them available even though we're supposed to be getting a new more ba5 focused vaccine I guess in late fall though I'm hearing huh. that that the government is trying to push that up push manufacturers to do that sooner like in September
4: yeah just one thing on that is we don't know when that ba5 specific vaccine is going to be available we don't know what the circulating virus will be in the latter part of this year so uh, I think for those people who are 50 and older where there's this clear-cut survival advantage those are in high risk, it's really important to get that second booster now if you're more than four to six months from the first booster.
3: We're talking with Dr. Eric Tobel, professor of molecular medicine at Scripps Research Institute, and Angela Medicas Vasquez, a long COVID patient, president of Body Politic. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation, sharing if you've had symptoms of long COVID or what your long COVID experience has been like. Also, your questions for our guests, or if you are a caregiver to someone with long COVID, what the experience has been like for you. Sharon writes, my daughter, age 42, infected March and September 2020, has experienced the gamut of bizarre multi-system, multisystemic symptoms, too numerous to list. She's been on oxygen for almost two years at four and a half liters, four to five liters, I'm sorry. But after 28 months, finally, she's able to be off her oxygen for short periods, and doesn't have an acute return of symptoms after doing a simple task like walking across her room. Hospitalized with both acute infections, we were afraid we were going to lose her. Our 19-year-old granddaughter also has long COVID complications. Wow, Sharon, I'm sorry to hear how much all of you have gone through your whole family, but particularly your daughter and granddaughter. I actually want to bring into the conversation now Paige Morrissey, A 25-year-old COVID long hauler. Paige, thanks so much for coming back on Forum. Hi, Irina. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. You were on in May of last year. And if it's okay with you, I'd actually like to play a clip from our conversation then um, when you were talking about what you were going through and experiencing. Yeah, go for it.
7: I remember waking up one day and just like uh, looking at my mom, and her face just looked and like felt like really unfamiliar to me, like she was a stranger to me. Um, And I like couldn't recognize myself in the mirror either. And I was also just increasingly like becoming more forgetful, like my short-term memory was really faltering. Um, And then of course the brain fog that we always hear about, um, which for long haul folks I have found like, just can range from being like, you're kind of what's happening right now. You're you're kind of forgetful. um, or, or you have like sometimes dementia, like symptoms where I've talked to folks who feel like who felt like they were going to forget their kids.
3: That was you page in May of 2021. There's that moment where you catch yourself being forgetful, <laughs> which made me so appreciate the effort you made to come on that day. <laughs> How are you doing now? Um,
7: it's wow. At
3: first it's so wild to hear yeah, I know, bet. It back to me <laughs> after all
7: this time, you know, um, but I, um, I'm glad to say that I'm doing a lot better, like a lot better. Um, I, I've found treatments that have really worked for me. It took a lot of time, um, a lot of experimenting. Um, but I feel like I'm really grateful to be on this end and have some things that I can share that have really helped me and that have helped some other long haulers too.
3: Yeah. So talk about how things have changed for you since then and what has been most helpful for you. Yeah. Um,
7: if I can distill it down to like maybe three things um, definitely the support of my family and my friends, like first and foremost, the consistent love over time has been invaluable. Um, And then all the knowledge from long haulers, like I honestly can say that all of the treatments that have worked, I've gotten from them from body politic shout out to Angela. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've had to go completely outside of the medical system because they just weren't able to help me and I had to get really experimental, um, but something that I found that's really helped that's been around for a while is a medical diet. Actually, it's called the GAPS diet. G A P S. Um, maybe you've heard of it, but it's it's been around for a while, and it's really like rooted in traditional diets. And um, a lot of folks who have nervous system disorders, Lyme, long COVID, you name it, um, have tried it. And I found and I found out about it through Body Politic, through seeing other long haulers heal through this diet. At first I was suspicious, you know, cause I had never tried anything like it. And, um, it wasn't something that a medical doctor had suggested to me, but once I started to see that I was healing, um, like pretty rapidly, I was like, I had restored hope again. And it was, it felt really miraculous. Like just to give you a little taste of where I'm at now, like I, well, spiritually, I just feel like a renewed sense of purpose in life. I, which I feel like is the most monumental thing. Um, but I'm like sleeping again. I'm able to walk again. I'm dancing again. I was a dancer pre-COVID. I, am I my POTS has significantly improved. Like before I would just be, to give an example, I was just like hanging out and my heart rate would be like 150. And now it's, I'm walking around, moving around. It's like 70. And um, so that's just one example, but um, I was hyperthyroid. And in two months, my numbers had leveled out. Um, and I still was really suspicious as I kept healing, but as I found that like real tangible things were changing and my mental health was improving, I felt like a sense of peace again. I just, I couldn't believe it. So, um, I'm really like, and I have a lot of other long hauler buddies. And when we talk, I, you know, I share this, but of course you have to come to treatments in your own time. But I was really lucky that I'd found this when I did, because I was, yeah, as many long haulers are incredibly desperate and incredibly sick.
3: Oh, so. Paige, I am so glad to hear you are doing <laughs> so well. And I remember at that time, too, you were, I think, living with your mom. Are you still living with your
7: mom now? or? No, actually, I mean, I do miss her, but I am uh, <laughs> i am living independently, which is huge. Um, I, I'm in San Francisco. Um, I'm working full time, um, which I know is like, you know, a capitalist measure of, of like health. But um, it, it, it does mean it does show that I have a level of cognitive functioning that I didn't have before. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm really grateful to have this space to heal. Um, but yes, I'm not, I am out of the house finally. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Paige Morrissey, uh, a COVID long hauler who spoke with us in May when she was really at the height of it and um, coming back to tell us how she's doing now. Thanks so much for checking back in, Paige. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mina, for having me. We'll have more hearing about long COVID and how you're doing with it after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about long COVID this hour, the latest studies, and what we're learning about the physical and emotional toll it takes on COVID long haulers. Dr. Eric Topol is with us, professor of molecular medicine and executive vice president of Scripps Research Institute, and Angela Merikas Vasquez, a long COVID patient and president of Body Politic which is a grassroots patient-led health justice organization. And you, our listeners, are sharing your questions about long COVID, your experiences with long COVID, or caring for someone with long COVID. Christopher writes... My wife has been diagnosed for five-plus years with chronic fatigue syndrome. It took us five years before we could get a diagnosis, and I went to a program that has helped. The symptoms are exactly the same as CFS. It's the same acute onset as well, a viral infection, and just never gets well. The system's just become CHF slash long COVID over time. We're also getting a couple of questions along these lines, Angela. That I'd be curious to get your response to. This listener writes: If there aren't any biomarkers for long COVID, how do we know these symptoms are due to that? The world has just been through a very stressful period. People have lost loved ones, jobs, communities, and they have deferred medical care. Maybe all these things have an effect on our health, and people don't have long symptoms after all sorts of viruses. Pete tweets: How can people separate other chronic illnesses from COVID-linked maladies? Is there a particular profile or set of symptoms that are more attendant to COVID. Curious what your reaction is to these, these kinds of questions and if you have any answers.
2: Yeah, I mean, th- those are, you know, unfortunately, really common responses. Even within, uh, you know, medical cir- circles and and physicians um, have approached these, uh, you know, infection triggered chronic illnesses with a lot of skepticism and, and quite honestly, a lot of, um, you know, misogyny uh, within the medical system of of not believing that women. Uh, in particular, who are you know tend to be more impacted by these um, conditions, that they're unreliable narrators to their own experiences. Um, you know, I will I will say that there are absolutely differences in folks who um, have. Uh, conditions like MECFS, cfs like uh, mast cell activation syndrome, like uh, POTS, um, and dysautonomia. Uh, it just takes uh, a knowledgeable clinician to be able to assess for these conditions. And, you know, there just are not enough um, knowledgeable clinicians out there to meet the existing need even pre COVID. Um, for example, I waited a year to see a specialist who could order the right tests, who found that I had abnormal, um, markers. So for example, when I stand up, my adrenaline levels shoot through the roof and it is triggered by my, um, by the simple act of standing up. That's not something that, um, that, uh, a typical lab can test. Um, I had to go to a specialist who drew special lab work to be able to tell me that my experience of just standing up gives me heart palpitations and shortness of breath, and I can't think. Um, that test validated um, my physical experience, what I was telling doctors all the time. And so I just, um, for me, I think it's just really important to remind folks that, um, you know, just because things are are normal during basic testing um, does not mean that your physical experience uh, is is normal um, and that we may just not have access uh, to the types of testing that can really validate um, your experience yet. But I I have confidence that it is coming because there are we we do have tests that can establish differences between patients with these kinds of conditions and those who are, who are well.
3: Well, let me go to caller Les in Cupertino. Hi, Les.
1: Hi. I was wondering, given that long COVID can be exacerbated by overexertion, if it would be prudent when you are sick with COVID to rest as much as possible.
3: Hmm. Dr. Topol, thanks, Les.
4: I think that's a really important point. Is that, um, in fact, uh, it's wise not to push it uh, in the during the illness uh, because you don't know where it's going in any individual. And so, you know, you, this is a uh, unpredictable uh, re- sequela, and uh, less exertion for a stretch uh, after. Uh, There are many uh, small studies that support that that is uh, a better way to handle the acute illness. Now, remember, people can feel that they've been perfectly uh, recovered, and then days or even weeks later, this is when the the long hauler uh, aspects can begin, just like what Angela so aptly described, this POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, where your heart rate's fine at rest. And as soon as you do anything like standing up, it just shoots through the roof. So trying to prevent that, which is not uncommon in people with long COVID, it's really good to and prudent to not overexert in the acute phase.
3: Let me go to caller Grant in San Rafael. Hi, Grant.
4: Hi, uh I'm the
1: director of Echo Neural in Mill Valley in San Francisco where we treat a lot of long COVID pretty successfully. Um, in our experience uh what makes sense is that there's a overload of inflammation of the microglial cells in the brain. The last 10 years and hey on on your shows that uh, brought that out um, that there is an immune system in the brain and it just gets overloaded. So this idea of resting also applies to uh avoiding uh, anything that's going to set you off uh, as an allergy or as a problem. But anyway, we've been seeing um, seeing it reverse in one, one or two sessions, uh, mm. and uh, I'm excited to uh, be able to announce that to the world, and we're trying to get some funding for a study of it now.
3: Well, Grant, I'm glad to hear you've had some success with what you've done there. And Dr. Eric Tobel, before the break, we were hearing Paige describe just... I wouldn't say that she describes herself as fully recovered, but really managing it well and having a new lease on life in a way. But have yeah. you heard uh, cases of long COVID patients fully recovering?
4: Oh, sure. Uh, there's no question about that. Over time, that chances of that for full or near complete recovery is enhanced. It was great to hear Paige's story yeah. and the fact that, you know, a change in her diet made a difference. I'm very... Uh, keen about things like that, uh, dietary uh, changes, although, you know, we need more data, but the things, you know, the things that have been offered as treatments like plasmapheresis is very expensive and not not proven. So there's a whole gamut of things out there, but, um, you know, all, all, even just a tincture of time and and just not pushing oneself uh, can can play a significant role, it looks like.
3: Angela, have you thought about how you would define being cured of long covid for yourself
2: yes i've i've been thinking a lot about it actually um because i am so much more functional uh, than i was you know when i first got sick and certainly at my worst um for me i think it would be not having to think about my body Um, It is, it has been, I think, a really um, uh, important spiritual journey that I've been on in the last two and a half years since being sick. And, you know, on the one hand, I think I really appreciate my body for um, what it got me through um, and the fact that I'm still here and alive. And at the same time, I'm really tired of thinking about my symptoms and, you know, planning my day out literally to the minute so that, um, you know, I, I I don't push myself uh, into a relapse. Um, I'm really tired of taking medication literally every four hours to manage the inflammation in my body. Um, I would love to go for a run. I haven't been on a run since I got sick, um, and. So for me just not having to think about all these things to, in some ways to be able to have the body privilege to forget about my body for you know for a day, several days a month, a year would be I think a blessing um because right now I I I spend a lot of mental and physical energy still managing my illness.
3: Yes, and you touched on this earlier in the show that For some people, this will be a long-term debilitating event. We also, of course, had some comments along the lines of just how severe and long-term the impact has been. Do you think policymakers understand this about the impact of long COVID and are starting to do the steps necessary to try to address what I I remember reading in in an LA Times piece, a doctor calling it a mass disabling event?
2: Yes, um, I I don't think most policymakers with the power and influence to really shift our our healthcare system, our social care system, employment, uh, education systems, our clinical medical education systems, really truly get what um, what sort of long COVID and these other conditions are, are doing to, to people, um, you know, again, we've, we have millions of folks with ME CFS prior to COVID um, who were disabled, who were not working, um, who were unable to get, you know, accommodations at work if they can work, who are unable to get disability benefits um, if they're unable to work. Um, and I, I honestly don't see the kind of urgency that I think we have needed um, and absolutely need um, to really shift systems in a way that will truly benefit, um, you know, folks like um, like me with long COVID, with ME/CFS. Um, you know, this is a public health crisis, but I think it's it's really easy to dismiss. Disabled folks who are who are invisible, who are not participating in the workforce, who you know whom we you know ration healthcare away from, whom we deny disability benefits, public benefits from. um, It's really easy to ignore. Us. And I, I am hoping that you know by jo- joining shows like this and and participating in educating the media and the public about our condition and and what policymakers can and should be doing, um, that we will become impossible to ignore.
3: Angela Marquez Vasquez is president of a grassroots, patient led health justice organization called Body Politic. Dr. Eric Topol is with Scripps Research Institute, a professor of molecular medicine and an executive vice president. There. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, let me go to call Charlie, Caller Charlie in San Francisco. Hi, call. Hi, Charlie.
1: Hi there. Uh, thanks so much to everybody having this show today. Uh, really appreciate the topic being discussed. It's, uh, I've been dealing with long COVID for two and a half years and here in San Francisco, completely housebound, you know, as prior, uh, you know, act, active worker, full-time, currently on disability. Um my, my question is to, to Dr. Topol, but also to um, Angela, if it uh, feels uh, fit to response. Um, there's, there's really only two ways to deal with this problem, and, we, you know, I think the patients see it as prevention and treatment. And it seems like policymakers have completely far gone trying to prevent um, long COVID, mm-hmm. which is now, you know, the most common adverse outcome from infection. And patients are deeply concerned there's no informed risk. Are no, no informed consent around that risk. So it kind of leads us only with the option of treatment. And it seems right now that treatment in the best case scenario is still two to three years out. And so I'm my question is to Dr. trouble. do you think there will be some sort of tipping point where it's just going to be an absolute public emergency to fast track trials, maybe you know, by next summer, you know, there, there's currently 25 million if there's 50 million people with this condition. But right now, patients who come down with this are still floundering. And, yeah, maybe after two years, they start to feel a little bit better. But that's just really not a sustainable way to, to treat this condition. So do you think there will be some sort of tipping point where there there will be some sort of operation warp speed for treating this condition? Charlie,
3: thanks so much. Dr. Topol?
4: Yeah, well, such a great question. Yeah. Yeah. I think... uh the difference we have now um, in, the, in the pandemic, as opposed to when we have seen these post-viral syndromes like myalgic encephalomyelitis, uh, CFS in the past, is we're in the era of citizen science. And um, listening to patients, listening to the people who are experiencing the illness, now at scale, of course, uh, that led to finally the NIH uh, uh, apportioning over a billion dollars towards long COVID. Uh, And it's in the form, the most of it in this recover project. And what's great is that the patient advocacy groups have really questioned this recover because they're basically collecting more on symptoms. Uh, It's good that they're looking for, uh, for an immune and other biomarkers, but they haven't really focused on treatment. And doing the trials, and we have lots of candidate medications. It could be Paxlovid, it could be, you know, uh, antibodies that help block the immune system. All sorts of things that we have in our toolkit that are not new medicines, but rather redirected to this. And so the frustration has been mounted, and we're in this time where, you know, the people who are affected have a big voice. And so I really do hope that we will accelerate and put these substantial funds that have been dedicated to NIH towards long COVID to put them to use, to, to test the treatments. And I fully agree that we're not doing nearly as much as we should about prevention. Uh, our our warning on BA5 came very late and it was also kind of, we got this and it should have been out there in May and it was just only a couple of weeks ago. So both on the prevention side and much more effort on the cl- clinical trials we need uh, to test they candidate treatments.
3: Well, Mel writes, I'm 31 and was a healthy athletic adult before getting COVID. I've had long COVID for eight months with burning lungs. I'm curious as to why in this era of mass disability, we have thrown basic med- mitigation like mask mandates out the window. It makes me resentful and angry when I see maskless people out in public. I know anger isn't helpful for the healing process, but it's awful to see the lack of compassion around me. I know more people are going to get hurt. Dr. Topol, how effective is masking uh, in terms of prevention? And there's a lot of pushback uh, to LA's plans or thinking about imposing an indoor mask mandate. I wonder if you can comment on that.
4: Yeah, I think the masks are really important still. Uh, you know, these are the KN95 or N95 masks with a really good fit. Uh, they're not as good as they used to be because BA5 uh, Omicron is, is so hyper transmissible, but they still help. And so the lack of using masks is just going to foster more infections uh, or reinfections. And then more people that suffer this condition. So I am fully with the the, uh, efforts that we should have with masking, with uh, distancing, ventilation, filtration, all the things that we know would help.
3: Well, then for people who are done with the pandemic and pandemic precautions, even though it's not done with us, what's your message, Dr. Topol?
4: Oh, you mean as far as what else we can do? Uh, well, there's the just, th- and
3: I think you've commented on this, just this feeling that, that the pandemic's over or that we want so much for it to be over that we almost try to act like right. it's not to help us right, cope.
4: Right, No, you can't will this away. I mean, unfortunately, and you can't make believe the virus isn't out there because it really is. And the vi- and the coronavirus has other ideas to find more hosts or repeat hosts. And so uh, we we have measures to counter it. Our booster rate is just absolutely pathetic in this country, ranked 67th vaccination in the world. We're below countries like, you know, Rwanda, Sri Lanka, Iran. I mean, it's just incredible how poorly we've done to protect ourselves, no less uh, the continued use of masking, particularly when you know there's a risk.
3: Well, Dr. Topol, we'll continue to check back in with you as we learn more about this. And Angela, Marikas-Vazquez, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and also your advocacy. Really appreciate that, too. Thanks so much. My thanks to Jennifer Eng for producing today's segment. And as always, to our listeners for sharing their experiences and questions. And to Paige for coming back. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.